1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your inspired, inerrant, infallible word, right? It's truths on our hearts. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Protestant Reformation was a back-to-the-Bible movement. And although that is the case, it's not the case that everybody in Europe was affected positively by it. Some people responded with hostility. Rome certainly did. And if we were to put our Roman Catholic hats on, which is difficult to do, but should we do that for a moment, to try and get into the minds of those on the other side of the aisle on the debate over the gospel, if we were to ask this question, what is the greatest heresy according to Rome? Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, who lived from 1542 to 1621, was a figure not to be taken lightly. He was Pope Clement VIII's personal theologian. He was uh, an able scholar. And he wrote this from the Roman Catholic side, the greatest of all Protestant heresies is, wonder what you expect to be the next word. How would you answer? The greatest of all Protestant heresies This is what he wrote. The greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. Assurance. Sinclair Ferguson addresses this and writes these words. A moment's reflection explains why. If justification is not by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, if faith needs to be completed by works, if Christ work somehow needs to be repeated, if grace is not free and sovereign, then something always needs to be done to be added for final justification to be ours. That is exactly the problem. If final justification is dependent on something we have to complete, it is not possible to enjoy assurance of salvation. For then, theologically, final justification is contingent and uncertain. And it is impossible for anyone, apart from special revelation, Rome conceded, to be sure of salvation. But if Christ has done everything, if justification is by grace, without contributory works, if it is received by faith's empty hands, then assurance, even full assurance, it's possible for every believer." Sinclair Ferguson goes on, No wonder Bellarmine thought full, free, unfettered grace was dangerous. No wonder the Reformers loved the letter to the Hebrews. 
That's why the author of Hebrews pauses for breath at the climax of his exposition of Christ's work, Hebrews 10.18. He continues his argument with a Paul-like therefore, Hebrews 10.19. He urges then, let us draw near in full assurance of faith, verse 22 of that chapter. We could go on. Isn't that interesting? The greatest heresy, assurance. You see, in the view of Rome, assurance would mean you're not needing to do a lot of stuff now, and they want activity. They want you on the mouse wheel. They want you running, 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 never knowing if you finally have done enough to achieve salvation. There's always more to do. There's always more people to help. And if you give someone the assurance of salvation, they can just sit back in their easy chair, so to speak. That's the thinking. However, you've got Bellarine and Rome on one side, then you've got the Apostle John on the other, who writes an entire book of the New Testament, 1 John, and he tells us why he writes it. Look at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Nothing else mentioned, nothing else needs to be mentioned. You simply believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. All right, you've got Rome, you've got the Scripture. Where are you going to stand? I'm going to go with the Scripture. You may know that you have. That's the reason John writes, I'm writing all this so that assurance will be yours of your standing before God. Rome says, you cannot know unless an angel comes, unless the Lord appears to you and gives you a special revelation. You cannot know and you should not know and it's immense pride to think that you know. Well, there's that, but there's First John that says, I'm writing these things that you may know. What are you going to believe? And when we say, I know, it's not because we take pride in ourselves, it's because we recognize the perfection of the work of Christ who saves by His grace alone, through faith alone, in Himself alone. And He does it perfectly. He's the perfect Savior. He is our boast. So we think about these things, the stakes couldn't be higher. Uh, John wrote with that purpose in mind, that they might know And for those who are believers in the Lord Jesus, we are to know. It's the foundation of our Christian life. We don't work to gain salvation. We work out from gaining salvation because of Christ and Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 are very clear. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We don't boast about our activity, we boast about His activity. He saves us by grace, through faith, alone. I'd like us to turn back to the book of Hebrews, back to Hebrews and chapter 7 for a moment. Perhaps you're someone who's hounded about this issue of assurance. Well, if you go to Rome, you'll never have assurance. You have to trade it if you want to be within its ranks, and you will be regarded as a heretic if you believe you have assurance. But Hebrews 7, I love to read verse 25. Consequently, talking of Jesus and because of his permanent priesthood, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
He's able to save. That's the boast. Not I'm able to do stuff. He is able to save. Think about that. Think about it. I'm a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior who is able to save. That's the emphasis of the text. He's able to save those who come to Him. I want to ask you, have you come? Have you believed? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? I want to give you an illustration. Hopefully it will make sense. It's not sensible when you hear it, but it will make sense as an analogy, I hope. Imagine I've got a house that has some plumbing issues. Uh, There are some pipes that need radical attention. And I look at a certain list of possible people to call, and I find a plumbing company called Trinity. And I call it just because of the heck of it. I call Trinity Plumbing. And uh, immediately, once... Again, this is a little bit fictitious. You'll hear why in a moment. Uh, The moment I call them, they're there at the door. And they walk in the house and they say, out of the way, please, we'll handle this. And they actually go in and replace all the pipes in all the house. And I'm saying, okay, well, I wasn't expecting all of that. I just thought you'd just deal with the problems. No, your problem was way, way worse than you realized. Everything needed to be replaced. Okay, what do I owe you? No charge. And off they go. All right, it's a fictitious story. (laughs) For sure. But the point I want to make is, I might have called with a lot of suspicion, didn't know too much about the Trinity Company, didn't know much of anything, I just happened to call them, but because of who they were as the company, they did a perfect job. A perfect job, well done, all at no charge. And here's where the illustration is hopefully helpful. It's by calling on the name of the Lord that we are saved, not by the power of our calling. Not by how sincere I was in my call. It's calling upon the right one, calling upon Him. He who calls upon the name of the Lord, even with weak faith, gets the strong Christ. What a blessing. I called upon the name of the Lord and He saved me, he ransomed me, he rescued me, not because my call was that powerful. Oh, do you see this one? Oh, the power of this call in this one. The force is strong with him. (laughs) Not at all. But with a weak faith, Lord, help my unbelief, but I'm calling on you. Lord, help the fact that I, I don't know all of the ins and outs. I don't know if I can live the Christian life. I don't know if I've got the power. I don't know if I can. I don't know, I don't know, but I'm calling upon you. Instantly he's there with all of his power, all of his saving power to save, and he does it to the uttermost. Hallelujah. It's not our great faith that saves, but even a feeble call upon the strong Christ saves all who call upon him. We want to talk about assurance. Let's go to John chapter 6. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Acts and Romans follow on. John chapter 6. Well, it was your faith that did it. Well, even that faith was God's gift. Wasn't part of me, except that God gave faith. We're just going to jump into the passage where basically what we have is Jesus feeding the 5,000 earlier in the chapter and people making a profession of faith. 
That's what we find in verse 14. This is indeed the prophet is to come into the world. That's what the crowd said. Uh, If he's to come, he can't be better than this. This is the man. This is the one. Jesus wasn't buying their faith as being genuine. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here we see two things that need to be pointed out. Two things in the text. Coming to Christ and believing in Christ are the exact same thing. We come to him by believing in him. Otherwise, if coming to him simply meant we had to come physically, only those in the first century could find out where he was going to be and hope to be there in the meeting and come to him in that way. No, but by believing in him, we are coming to him. And verse 36, but I said to you, that's the crowd, that you've seen me and yet do not believe. Now, these were professors. They were professors of Christ. They professed to know him. They professed belief in him. But he saw through it. You don't believe, he says. And then he says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Notice the order. It's the giving of the Father to the Son that causes the coming of the people to Christ. And the Bible says all, not 28%, not 85%, but all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, that's believing in Christ, whoever comes to me, I will, look at this, never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, I can't imagine for a moment Jesus failing to fulfill his Father's will. He's always able to report, I did it. I've completed the work you gave me to do. And so when he tells us that he's here to do the Father's will and then explains what that will is, our ears should prick up because he's going to do it. And that's what we read in the next verse. Verse 38, I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. All right, let's listen up. What's the will? that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it, that's the entire group, up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. People didn't like this. Why would they? He just told them they're unbelievers. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They found an offense in his teaching. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Look at verse 44. No one can. This is a universal negative. No one speaks of a universal condition. And the word can speaks of ability. No one is able. No one can come to me. Well, that's a problem if that's the end of the verse. We've got to come to Christ to be saved. All that the Father gives me will come, but no one can come. Thankfully, that's not the end of the sentence. No one can come. No one has the ability to come. That's our natural condition because we don't want Christ apart from God's intervention. No one can come to me unless, here's the acceptive clause, and I'm thrilled that it's there because it gives us hope. No one come to me can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. In the original language, the 
two words, him, are very close together. Uh, Unless the Father who sent me draws him, and him I'll raise up on the last day. It's the same person. The one he draws comes and will be raised up on the last day. So, there is this group, the elect of God. All the elect come to Christ. No one but the elect come. That's according to verse 44. No one can come unless it's given to him by the Father. In fact, verse 65 says the same thing. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. So what's the explanation? We're justified, declared right in the sight of God by faith alone. We're not uh, justified any other way. And divine election simply explains who will have faith. All that the Father gives me will come to me, will believe in me. The elect are given faith. We're in John chapter 6, look at verse 29. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It's interesting the power of this one verse, and it's only recently I've come to understand it. This is the working of God. This is God at work, that you believe in him whom he sent. In other words, when you and I see someone believing in the one that has been sent, that is in the Lord Jesus, that's the activity of God. That's the work of God. Faith is a gift. Trusting in Christ, even that trust is a gift. You cannot trust in Christ unless God does that work in you. Philippians 1.29 spells it out too about faith being the gift of God. It's been granted you not only to suffer but to believe in Him. Philippians 1.29 So what's the basis of assurance? The basis is the perfect work of the perfect Savior. He draws, the Father draws all to the Son who's been given to the Son in eternity past, and they come, and on the basis of the perfect work of Christ, plus nothing, we're saved. We have eternal life. Most famous verse in our Bibles, John three sixteen. For God loved the world, so loved the world in this way, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever, finish it for me, believes in him, shall not perish but have eternal life. The one who believes will in no way perish, but in contrast have eternal life. So let's talk about this assurance. Talk about eternal life. Eternal life, now this is going to be deep, is eternal. You can't ever say, oh yeah, I had eternal life for 28 minutes. 28 days, 28 years. Eternal life is eternal life. Now, there is such a thing as a false faith and not genuine faith, but if you've got genuine faith, even a feeble faith in Christ, guess what? You have eternal life. Your obedience is not the basis of your assurance. Now, That needs some qualification, some nuance to that that we need to understand. But let me say it again. Your obedience is not the basis of your assurance. You're doing well in the Christian life. You think, I'm saved because I'm doing well. 
Look at my church attendance. Look at my giving record. Look at this. Look at that. Look at, look at, look at, look at this. This is why I know I'm saved. No. The reason you're saved is because of the perfect and finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ plus nothing. Now, when we grow in our knowledge of God, hopefully we're all growing, the greater, it seems, our capacity to be aware of our sin. Things that we thought were not real issues, the Holy Spirit convicts us. and you, know, you shouldn't be talking like that. You shouldn't be using God's name like that in a conversation. And OMG, and you, have you ever gone through those kind of things where you think, ah, that didn't bother me last year, now I'm really bothered by it. That's the Holy Spirit at work. And the more you and I continue in the Christian faith, the more you and I are going to see our flaws. So if obedience is the basis, then it's going to be a kind of a flimsy assurance that we have because we're going to become more and more aware of our sin. We, we often think, you know, as a single person, I'm so easy to live with. And then we get married. And then we realize I'm not that easy. Maybe they aren't too. They have the idea, oh, it's just going to be a walk in the park. Yeah, there might be some walks in the park. <laughs> By yourself. <laughs> There's a biblical command to examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not... Realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test. There are some people that react to that verse and say, oh, I don't want to look within, but there's a biblical command to examine yourself. Do I have true faith? I want to ask this question of myself and of you today. Do I, do you love the Lord? 1 Corinthians 16, 22 says this, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. Maranatha. So, the Christian has love for the Lord. How are you doing? R.C. Sproul was often asked, how do we know we have assurance of salvation? He asked three questions of anyone who asked him that question. He says, do you love the Lord perfectly? And everyone usually would say no. And that kind of takes away any grounds for assurance. And then he says, now, do you love the Lord as you should? Well, if you answered no to the first question, the real issue is this, that you should love him perfectly. Do you love him as you should? I'd have to say no. And then he asked the third question. Do you love him at all? If you love him at all, if you understand your Bible, you love him because he first loved you. You love him because he's changed the disposition of your heart. We can never say, you know, for this week and this month, I love the Lord perfectly. How many of you have done that even since you got out of bed today? Aren't you glad that there's no recordings of the conversation you had with your spouse on the way here? Aren't you glad... You know, we don't live the Christian life perfectly. There's only one who ever did, and that was God, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived perfectly in word, thought, and deed. All of us come short of the glory of God. So if we're looking within ourselves, we're not going to find this perfect relationship. And God requires perfection, doesn't he? 
Jesus said, you must be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. So, do I, do you love the Lord? Is there something in you that loves him? The biblical Jesus, not the way out cult version of Jesus, not the New Age Jesus, the Jehovah's Witness Jesus, the Mormon Jesus, the one who really is. The reason why the Mormon Jesus can't save is because he doesn't exist. But the real one does. Unless you believe that I am, Jesus said, you'll die in your sins, John chapter 8. So here's the second question as you're battling with the first one. Hopefully you're saying, yeah, there is some measure, some measure of love for the Lord. Question two, do you, do I want his will? Do I want to do it? If he can show me in his word what his will is, do I want that? Now, we're not talking about perfection in the Christian life. We are talking about direction. And there's a difference. Jesus said, in fact, let's go there for a moment. We're in John 6, so go to chapter 14. Do I want the will of God? Be careful before you say, oh yeah. Because sometimes, many times, God asks us to do things that are not convenient. I remember when I was a young Christian and was shaking hands at the door on the way out of the service where I gave my life to Christ, the, the man at the door shook my hand and said, see you next week. Next week? What are you talking about? I've raised a hand, I've walked an aisle, I've signed a card, I'm good for years to come. But as you grow in the Christian life, you realize there should be no disconnect between the head and the body, that the Lord has given us the body of Christ in order to grow in our Christian life, and God commands us to assemble together. John chapter 14, look with me in verse 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. There's something called spiritual dyslexia. I write about it in my book. And that's where you get things jumbled up. You don't see things the right way. You know, many Christians look at this and they say, if I keep doing God's commandments, God God will love me. That's not anywhere in the text. No, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's the overflow out of the love you have for Jesus, you'll want to do his will, his commands. And I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you, how long? Forever, verse 16. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I'll not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I'm in the Father and you in me and I in you. Look at verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, 
and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So there we have it. Question number two is, do I, do you love the Lord and want to do his will in his word? Now, many of you are into mathematical formulas. One thing that could be helpful is to bring one out right now. According to Rome, here's how justification works. Faith plus works equals justification. Not faith alone, but faith plus your actions. Faith plus love, faith plus works equals justification. The Reformers, here would be the mathematical formation. Faith equals justification plus works. Now that might surprise you. Let me say it again. Faith equals justification plus works. Now works are mentioned as the overflow of justification. Because the truly justified person has true living faith that will produce works. But works are never the basis of the justification. Notice where the equal sign is. The only thing on the one side of the equal sign is faith. It equals justification, and the justified person will also produce good works. But works are never the reason for the justification. If I've communicated that, you know the gospel. You're saved by a living faith, not a dead faith. And that's the point James is making in his epistle. You say you've got faith, what's the point of it if it doesn't produce anything? Faith without works is dead. Can that faith justify it? And the answer is no. Only a living faith justifies. But even though you go running around the country and do a lot of stuff and you do your home and you live your life and you produce good works, works are never the basis of your standing before God. But they are the fruit of true faith. Someone wants to run into the building today and say, the building is on fire. Fire! Fire! It will be kind of strange if we sat him down and say, yes, amen. We've always believed it would happen one day. That the building would catch on fire. We believe it. How many of you believe it? I believe it. Yes, amen. Some disconnect going on, right? Because if we really believed the building was on fire, we would have actions. There would be some showing leadership, some screaming. No. Uh, there would be some that say, okay, where are the exits? They'll be saying, like, this is the... Uh, I don't see any fire here. Here's a safe way out. Let's get everyone out before we attack uh, with the water. And others will say, okay, where are the, where's the water? Let's go for it. Someone, someone else will be calling the uh, 911 and getting people here very, very quickly. But if we believe the message, we won't be just saying, yes, amen, it's on fire. <laughs> no, we'll act. And if you really believe in the Lord Jesus you will act. You'll want to do his will. There'll be something in you 
that wants his will. So your obedience is not the ground of your assurance. Can you say amen? However, your obedience is part of your assurance. Because using that scenario, if there is no work, if there's nothing that says, this shows I'm a Christian, alarm bells should be going off in our heads to say, was my faith genuine? If I know this is what God wants and I have no interest in that, there should be alarm bells going off. Did I really have, do I really have true faith? I want to say this, not all those who are struggling for assurance should be assured. If someone is in a lifestyle of gross and heinous sin and they're unrepentant, you should doubt your assurance. If you can live knowing that God says this and you've got no interest in doing it, there should be something that says, am I really a Christian? Here's what I've come to understand. True believers repent and believe. That's it. Repentance is a cry to God for forgiveness and it's a turning away from sin. And we never do it perfectly. Again, it's not the strength of our faith that saves. It's the strength and power of the Savior. It's not the depth of our repentance that earns the favor of God. None of us repent well, at least as well as we ought. And here's the good news. Jesus came to save sinners who cry to him for mercy. One man wrote this, If you fear you've committed the unpardonable sin, you almost certainly have not. Those who have do not have the Holy Spirit in them to convict them for blasphemy against the Spirit. So what do we do? If we're not Roman Catholic, we understand that assurance is available to us. In our world, there's a number of things we do, none of which, most of which, are not helpful. One is a rededication. You ever heard of that? Rededicate. And people have, churches have, rededication services. These are people who've been away from the Lord, now they're coming back to rededicate themselves. Where I was growing up in my early years, I think I wore my rededicator out. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to sin ever again, Lord. No, 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 that was Sunday night by Tuesday. Oh, God. When's the next rededication service? And people think that, you know, I need to walk the aisle again. In fact, uh, there's nothing in your Bible that tells you to walk the aisle. I remember hearing of a service where that would have been a problem when a church was meeting when there was a musician's pit in front of the pulpit. Um, people, if they walk forward, they, in fact, they were actually asking people to walk forward and then they realized, stop, you're going to die you walk into the pit. The Bible says repent. The Bible says believe. What about a public profession of faith? That's the baptism. That's what they did in the early church. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they were added to the church, became functioning members in the church. Then they had the Lord's Supper. There was a sequence so if we're not going to do the rededication thing, what happens often is we want a, re, 
a second, a third, a fourth baptism. Well, I was baptized at this age and I went away from the Lord and now I need to be re-baptized because I've uh, come to know my sin again and I really want to live for the Lord this time. And there's usually a couple of reasons why they suggest that they need a re-baptism, another baptism. Firstly, I know more now. Well, I hope you do. But that's not why you are baptized. Do you realize little children can enter the kingdom of God? You don't have to be elite theologians to enter heaven. Take a sigh of relief. I do. Praise the Lord. Second, they might say, this is the reason I really really mean it this time. Biblically, baptism should be a one-time event. And what we're doing by that is confessing our union with Christ. We're saying, I'm fully identified with Christ. It's interesting in the Muslim world, if you are raised as a Muslim and you go to a Christian church, the family is not too pleased. If you say a prayer to Christ they are even more not pleased. But if you're baptized, you're renounced, and it might even be the case that you are hounded for your life. They realize the difference because you are making a complete identification with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And they know the stakes. Here's what we will do as a church. If someone says, I'd love to be re-baptized because I was baptized and then I went away from the Lord and now I'm back, we would ask this, tell us about your baptism. And we would ask questions to determine whether it was a legitimate baptism. And it would be in asking two questions to find out if that's the case. Number one, was your baptism carried out using the Trinitarian formula? I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Second, we would ask, was it carried out in a true church? A gospel-preaching church. Now, there are churches with whom we are absolutely aligned, but there are others that we say, whoa, they're way off here, they're way off there, we can't go with them here on this doctrine, but we know they're still legitimate gospel-preaching churches. And someone who was baptized in that church, we would recognize that baptism as valid. We don't baptize to become part of King's Church. It's to be part of, not even to be part of, it's recognizing you are part of Christ. So we wouldn't encourage another baptism. Now if someone was baptized as a Jehovah's Witness in a kingdom hall, we'd say we don't recognize that as a legitimate baptism. Same with uh, the Mormon Church and even the Roman Catholic Church. We would not... Uh, say that they are gospel preaching churches. So I I hope that helps. So what do we do? We would say, recognize your baptism was valid and have a little time with the Lord and say, Lord, I'm reaffirming what I did at my baptism. I'm identifying with you. I'm identified with you in your death, your burial and resurrection. That's all we would say because the Bible doesn't say have a second, third, fourth baptism. Let me begin to wrap this up by relating to you something I heard from a sermon by Sinclair Ferguson. I quoted him earlier, and uh, this is actually a transcript. I was listening to this some time back, and I thought, this is so good, I'm going to write it down. And this is what he wrote. 
One of our ladies gave me a little sheet the other day and I searched this out and I found this information in more than one place. Let me tell you what it's all about. The great Queen Victoria, one day as she left St. Paul's Cathedral there in London with that great dome, she asked one of her chaplains, can one be absolutely sure in this life of eternal safety? Sadly, the, the chaplain responded that he did not know any way in which one could be certain. It's important where you go to church, guys, even if you're the queen. The Court News, which was a newspaper, published this conversation, and a man by the name of John Townsend, who was a little nobody, uh, evangelist, saw the comments, and he began to pray for Queen Victoria, and he thought about writing to her. And he did write. He wrote these words. To Her Gracious Majesty, our beloved Queen Victoria from one of her most humble subjects. That's the kind of thing British people say to the rulers. <laughs> With trembling hand but heartfelt love, and because I know we can be absolutely sure now of our eternal life in the home that Jesus went to prepare, may I ask your gracious majesty to read the following passages of Scripture. John chapter 3, verse 16, and Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. These passages prove that there is full assurance of salvation by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ for those who believe and accept his finished work. I sign myself your servant for Jesus' sake, John Townsend. Well, John Townsend and his friends prayed for Queen Victoria. Some weeks later, he received a letter through the mail to John Townsend. Your letter of recent date I received, and in reply would state that I have carefully and prayerfully read the portions of Scripture referred to. I believe in the finished work of Christ for me, and trust by God's grace to meet you in that home of which he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And then she signed it, Victoria. God answered the prayer. God saved the queen. I want to relate to you in closing. A little bit lengthy, but it's from C.H. Spurgeon. And when you find a Spurgeon quote, you realize, that's it, I don't need anything else. And he had pastoral wisdom dealing with someone who was, in his words, very regular in attendance at the place he was preaching. She was a wonderfully good listener. She used to drink in the gospel, but nevertheless she was always doubting, always fearing, always trembling about her own spiritual condition. She'd been a believer in Christ for around 50 years, but she'd always been timid and fearful about her eternal state. He writes this, One day when I was talking with her, she told me that she had not any hope at all, she had no faith. She believed that she was a hypocrite. I said, then don't come to the chapel anymore. We don't want hypocrites there. Why do you come? She answered, I come because I can't stop away. I love the people of God. I love the house of God. And I love to worship God. Well, I said, you're an odd sort of hypocrite. You're a 
queer kind. You could say the word back then. You are a queer kind of unconverted woman. Ah, she sighed. You may say what you please, but I have no hope. I have not any hope of being saved. So I said to her, well, next Sunday, I will let you go into the pulpit that you may tell the people that Jesus Christ is a liar and that you cannot trust him. Oh, she cried, I'd be torn in pieces before I would say such a thing as that. Why? He cannot lie. Every word he says is true. Then I say, why do you not believe it? She replied, I do believe it, but somehow I do not believe it for myself. I'm afraid whether it is for me. Have you not any hope at all, I asked. No, she answered. So I pulled out my purse, my wallet, and said to her, now I've got five pounds here, it's all the money I have, but I will give you that five pounds, which back in 18-something was a lot of money, I'll give you that five pounds for your hope if you will sell it. She looked at me, wondering what I meant. Why, she exclaimed, I would not sell it for a thousand worlds. She had just told me that she had no hope of salvation, yet she would not sell that hope for a thousand worlds. I fully expect to see that good old soul when I get to heaven, and I'm certain she'll say to me, Oh, dear sir, how foolish I was. When I lived down there at Water Beach, an area of London, I went groaning all the way to glory, when I might just as well have gone there singing. I was always troubled and afraid, but my dear Lord kept me by his grace and brought me safely here. She died very sweetly. It was with her as John Bunyan said it was with Miss Much Afraid, Mr. Despondency's daughter. Mr. Great Heart had much trouble with those poor pilgrims on the road to the celestial city, for if there was only a straw in the hay, they were fearful that they would stumble over it. Yet Bunyan said, when the time was come for them to depart, they went to the brink of the river. The last words of Mr. Despondency were, farewell, night, welcome, day. His daughter went through the river singing. Spurgeon continues, our Lord often makes it calm and peaceful for even joyous and triumphant for his departing timid ones. He puts some of his greatest saints to bed in the dark and they wake up in the eternal light. But he frequently keeps the candle burning for Mr. Little Faith, Mr. Feeble Mind, Mr. Ready to Halt, Mr. Despondency, and Miss Much Afraid. Little children, I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, the faithful one, merciful and faithful high priest. We thank you for your saviorhood. You are perfect in all that you are and all that you do. And with our feeble faith, we lay hold of a strong Christ. We thank you for this in Jesus' name.